The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. This passage we're going to look at today is the tragedy of King Saul. King Saul was a man who y'all have talked about. He is the king that the people asked for. The, king, the people essentially wanted a king like them, like all the other people had. He was good looking. He was tall. He was strong. People liked him. Um, because he was good at pleasing people around him. And that's what God gives them as their first king, preparing for a future king. And all that catches up to him really today. And this is the beginning of the end for King Saul. And when we are honest with ourselves, we're not a whole lot different than him. He was an ancient man leading a kingdom, but he was also a human being in a broken world and struggled and I think we'll see in some ways that many of us struggle. So this is Psalm, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to read the first nine verses, and then we're going to refer to other ones throughout. Um, so have your Bible open or look on the screens. This is 1 Samuel 1, uh, for starting in 1 Samuel 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have, not, I have noted what Amalek did to, to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devout to, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill man, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hevelah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. It would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would show up. You promise to use your word through reading and through preaching to speak to us because it is active and it is living. Your spirit inspired this word to be written. Your spirit lives inside of Christians. Your spirit, the same spirit who has been in fellowship with the Father and the Son, together for all of eternity, we ask that He would teach us this morning from this passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm a recovering people pleaser. And I say recovering because I still do it and have to battle against it. And I was thinking in the confession of sin time, both in the first service and this time, it's not something that I often confess. But I confess to you this morning that I am a people pleaser and have to confess of it. 
what that essentially means is that I try to get other people to like me to my own glory, to help me feel better about myself. I'm dependent on other people, essentially, especially the people whose opinion really matters to me. When I was growing up, that was my parents and my teachers. When I got older, that was my friends. And then a little more than 10 years ago, it was the girl that I was beginning to like and date and get engaged to and quickly marry. And for the past 10 years, I've tried to people-please in our relationship, my wife Brittany and my relationship. And I people-please her in subtle ways that are often hidden from me that she has to point out to me because it's so deep in me that I don't even notice it. But it's a form of manipulation. At a basic level, trying to care for other people, to please other people, to help them feel good about themselves, to make them happy, to help them enjoy the life that they've been given and enjoy the relationship is a good thing, it's a, or it's a neutral thing. It's part of loving other people. But when we use it, or when I use it to make me feel better, make me feel right in myself, in the brokenness of the world around me, it's not good. It's not loving to the other person, and it's definitely not loving to God. It's using other people on my campaign for my own glory, to try to meet my need of making myself right in the world. It's not something that we often confess, but it really is a sin. And in the New Testament especially, God compares it or puts it in a list of other sins like immorality and idolatry, even though we often don't confess it. My guess is that many of you, some of you, struggle with it too in this room. And it drives us crazy because too often it leads us into self-destruction. Maybe that's because you never say no and you're always saying yes and then you're getting frustrated because everybody is, keeps asking you, and there's no boundaries. But it also drives you crazy because you know deep down there's no way that you can get, really get control over people and get them to like you. Others of us in the room wouldn't consider ourselves people pleasers per se. We're kind of strong in our will. We don't try to please people. But when we're honest, we do what the Bible lumps all of it together as a fear of man. We really care about what other people think about us. And what this ends up doing is disrupting our pursuit of faithfully following after God. For example, sometimes we don't stop the gossip going on in the workplace because we're afraid that if we do, that we're going to be labeled as the goody-two-shoes Christian. We care what they think. We don't confront our loved ones who are addicted to things because we're really afraid of their anger coming back after us. We want to keep them on our good side. Or sometimes it might be deeper and we don't end up confessing a sin that's been plaguing us and breaking us because we're afraid what other people will think of us when we confess. The Bible warns, though, that in the Proverbs that the fear of man will prove to be a snare like a snare that catches an animal, it grabs us and holds us and leads to our death and destruction. So often we fear of, our fear of what other people think of us threatens to undo our faithfulness to God. And that's what's going on in this tragic passage of King Saul and really his whole time as the king. So often God's people's fear of other people ruins or threatens to ruin their faithfulness, our faithfulness to God. 
This passage starts with God reminding Saul through Samuel of his identity as the role of the king of God's people and also really as a member of God's people. He, as the king, has been set apart for a task to execute God's rule in the world and bring about God's glory. And as a side note, that's all of our purpose as God's image bearers. We are made to glorify God and extend his glory into all parts of our lives and the world around us. But Saul has a particular task and role as the king. Samuel essentially says to him, God made you king because he is good for his people. You're to represent his rule to his people and bring about the reign, his reign on the earth because you're his representative ruler. And because of that, you're supposed to execute his justice. So once God has reminded Saul of that, he continues through Samuel to this. He says, so since you're the king and you're called to execute my justice, here's what you're going to do. You're going to execute God's justice on the Amalekites. They started attacking my people 240 years ago when I was bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And I warned them then that judgment was coming and they haven't relented and repented. And so judgment is here and you're going to wipe them completely off the face of the earth. All the people, all the animals, everything to my glory. Now today, this seems crazy, terrible. It makes some of us question, can I follow after a God like this? Is the Old Testament, can it even be included as part of God's Bible because of stuff like this? And I think that's a good question to wrestle with because it says that the Holy Spirit is at work inside of you. God's loving Holy Spirit. Because you realize that you're not the judge. You can't judge. But... God is not just loving, He's also just. His justice is part of His love of making things right. He can't allow sin and rebellion and brokenness to go unpunished, and you don't want that either. You want the judgment day to come to judge all brokenness and sin that's been done against you and that's been done in the world. God uses the kingdom of Israel in a different way than He uses us, His people, the church. God used them to bring judgment against evil. The people in the land where they were settling had horrific cultural practices tied to their worship. They worshipped false gods who were violent and demanded violence and blood in worship. They used cultic, cultic prostitution that devalued human beings into just objects to be used for worship. They also sacrificed children to the bloodthirsty gods to get crops to grow. And these inhabitants of the land where they were going or they were settled were tempting God's people towards these practices. And the Amalekites were some of the worst. They were the first enemies of God's people attacking them as they were coming on the way in and tempting them to go this way. And back even at the time of Moses, God had said, I'm declaring war on them because they're trying to thwart my plan of bringing my people into this place but they didn't turn. That's what his judgment is supposed to do, is draw us back. And he, they didn't turn. They kept waging war against God's people and joining other forces to wage war against them too to lead them astray. But judgment is here for them. And it's really a picture of judgment one day for all of those of us who don't worship the one true, loving, and just God. The judgment is coming for these people 
It happens to be then. So, Saul sets off to obey the word of the Lord to execute God's justice. At Telaim, he gathers 200,000 men and another extra 10,000 people from Judah. And this is a frightening amount of people. Imagine that many people, more than Arizona Stadium could hold by a couple of times around. But to battle the Amalekites, who were these nomadic warriors who were fierce, who had been dominant for the last couple of hundred years, that's an appropriate amount of people to take into battle. So they travel the number of miles to just outside of the city of Amalek, and on the way, they run into these people, the Kenites. The Kenites were longtime allies of God's people. My son in his school last year would call them the first friends. And you're always loyal to the first friend. And this was good in God's eyes. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. These people joined up with Israel to travel with them. They weren't one of the tribes of Israel, but they were their first friends, their first allies. And they really modeled what people there should have done is repenting and worshiping the one true God. And so he says, get out of the way. Destruction and judgment is coming on the Amalekites. Get out of the way. So he spares them, but then he lays this ambush for the Amalekites. His army attacks the Amalekites. They defeat them. They're executing God's justice. And throughout this whole time, you can imagine if we were watching this in a movie, some James Horner soundtrack would be playing, and the music is epic and swelling in all of this battle. And then there's a scratch in the record in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Saul makes his own plan. He spares the worst of them all. He kills everybody else, but he spares the one person who embodied and led all the plundering and all the murdering. Agag represents their lack of concern for life. But this terrible mighty king is a great trophy for the mighty king, Saul. To bring him chained and submitting in front of the Israelite people would show how great Saul is. They'll love it. They'll love me. And so Saul and all the people spared all the best stuff, including King Agag, the best animals and other spoils of war. But all the stuff that's worthless and useless, they just throw into destruction. But that's not what God's command was. His command was to vote everything to destruction for my glory. So God continues to speak. So God then speaks to Samuel in verse 10. And he says to Samuel, I regret making Saul king because he did not listen to me and follow my commandments. Samuel's lit. He's righteous in his anger and it fills him and he cries out to God throughout the night because Samuel vouched for this guy. So the next morning, he gets up, and he starts to travel to find Saul. And on the way, somebody catches up with him and says, Did you hear about Saul? They had this great victory. He's been in Carmel, and now he's on his way to Gilgal. They're throwing him celebrations. They're toasting him. He even built a monument for himself. All hail King Saul. A monument speaks volumes. It said, Look how awesome Saul is. Now, this rarely happens in the United States and the Western world today. I don't know many alive people or alive rulers who build physical monuments to themselves. 
we normally wait till they're dead and then we honor them. We have this culture of outward humility. But think about other places in the world. Think about Saddam Hussein, the statues that were toppled in Iraq that were of him. Think about um, Joseph Stalin and Lenin and the statues that they erected for themselves and the monuments that they built. And these monuments speak to the glory and the honor of these leaders and how great that they are. This whole mission was for God's honor and glory, to execute God's justice on one of the fiercest enemies that his people had faced. And in a campaign for God's justice and honor, Saul seeks his own honor. We're not dictators, you and I. We're not queens and kings of Israel. But how often do we do this? We don't build physical monuments but we set out in faithfulness to pursue God and seek His glory, but we end up puffing up ourselves to look good in front of other people. Everything becomes a platform for our reputation, our work and our portfolio, our marriage, our parenting, our sports career, our ministry, our work in the classroom. We might externally give glory to God, but we are subtly seeking ways to bring glory to ourselves. So how do you build a monument? Do you insert a certain line into a conversation with someone to let that person know that you are a loyal friend and all your friends know you as a loyal friend? And if this person really knew you, they would see that you're a loyal friend or that you're a hard worker or that you're really smart. Is it your, we joke about this, but is it your Instagram feed where you have a hashtag of blessed, but it's really so people can see how awesome you are? Maybe it's something a little bit more subtle and deeper that you have to take work to notice. Consider the times that you get angry around other people. Now, there's legitimate times to get angry, but is it really pointing to the button that they're pushing because they're not noticing what you want them to notice? about the reputation and the honor that you're creating for yourself. They didn't see the monument that you built for them to see. In the campaign for God's honor, so often we seek our own honor. The story continues. Samuel comes in hot, and Saul greets him, and he says, essentially, God bless you, Samuel. Good to see you. We did it. We did what God said. We defeated the Amalekites. And Samuel responds like most prophets with a certain level of a sarcasm. So, why do I hear the sheep bleeding and the oxen bellowing? Saul starts to defend the Saul glory campaign. Oh, you know, Samuel, I did what God said. We routed the Malachites. So I brought the best stuff back to him because, you know, God really cares about the best stuff. We don't want to keep the best stuff back from God. We bring the best stuff to God. Samuel's about to lose it. He says, let me tell you what God says about that, what he told me last night. And this is where Samuel lays out this truth bomb as a rebuke that I think would make Lin-Manuel Miranda proud because he's like being witty in his wordplay here. Saul has always struggled with thinking how low of himself he is, even though he, in every room, in every crowd, he's the tallest by head. So Samuel says, though you're little in your own eyes, you are, not the, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He's laying the smack down. And then he continues in verse 18 and says, 
And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed all the way up. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you, not, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul continues to defend the Saul glory campaign, trying to save face in front of even Samuel. And maybe there's bystanders around and that's influencing him too, but I think it's really about his saving face in front of Samuel. He says, Samuel, I did what the Lord told me to do. We obliterated the Amalekites. Saul's starting to spin it to look good for himself. He said, I took Agag, the king, because that's what kings do in battle. They take other kings. But then... Those people that you put me in charge of, the people took the sp- of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. When the spinning's not quite working, he starts to blame it on the people. He is not wanting to admit that he's wrong in front of Samuel. He's trying to manipulate Samuel into seeing him in a good light, to affirming him and approving of him especially because he's already on thin ice, like y'all talked about a couple of weeks ago with Samuel. His reputation campaign is extending to managing God's prophet who's rebuking him. Think, let's think of it like this. Let's say I'm taking my kids to the grocery store to do some grocery shopping, and Brittany texts me and says, hey, will you pick up a rotisserie chicken so all we have to do is debone it and then we're ready to eat? But then as I'm in the grocery store, I'm walking along and I end up getting a frozen chicken and bringing it home. And say, here's the chicken, I can grill it for dinner. I would get some angry, fierce eyes if that happened. But then what if once I saw those fierce eyes, I started to backpedal and said, well, when I asked your kids what they wanted, your kids said I should grill chicken and it would be way better for your kids and for you than a rotisserie chicken. That would be ridiculous, and that would not be good. Don't do that. (laughs) He's spinning and blaming. I think when we're honest with ourselves, this is what some of us do in our disobedience with God's command. When someone confronts us, if we're blessed enough to have someone confront us in our sin, we try to excuse or blame away our sin. We try to explain it away. We try to mansplain it. We want to save face with them. We try to explain our temper against our coworker or our kids or our roommates. It's not really anger. Or if that doesn't work, we then try to blame it on something else. We blame it on our hard week or our tired feet. We blame it on someone else getting mad at us. We blame it on them themselves. We're trying to continue the campaign of our honor, and we are slow to admit that we're wrong see what happens with Saul. Saul's been refusing to be humble in admitting that he's wrong. He de- his desire to people please and honor himself has led him to disobey God and his commands, and it's leading him to justify himself in this confrontation. But Samuel's not letting him have any of it. He cuts through the baloney, and he puts on his prophet voice, because we see it because it's set apart in the Bible. And he says in verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as 
sin and as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What Samuel is saying is that God cares about obedience from your heart. Disobeying God's commands is rebellion. It's like you're fighting for the Amalekites. You're no different than they are. Because of that, in your rebellion, you're no longer the king because you're rebelling against God. This seems to wake Saul up a little bit. He pauses. He gets quiet. And he begins to respond in verse 24. He says, I've sinned. For I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and for your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. But he's hinting already that he doesn't really care about the confession before God because he wants him to go back with him, wants Samuel. Listen how the scene unfolds. His focus is not on his relationship with God. Listen how it unfolds. Samuel says, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel turns to go away, and Saul clings to him and clings to his cloak, his robe, and he pulls and it tears, and Samuel looks at him and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you from this day and has given it to your neighbor, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. What he's saying is God is not changing his mind on this. You're no longer the king. This is drastic. This is heavy. This is final. It's the climactic scene of the whole narrative, like the gavel is coming down hard. God has spoken judgment. How will Saul respond? Will he respond with contrition? Will he respond with sadness before the Lord? Will he cry out and cling, not for his own sake, but out of mercy? Say, have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. Sisters and brothers, throughout our lives as Christians, seeking to follow the Lord, we will be confronted in our sin. For some of us, it will happen when Pete or James or one of the elders is preaching. Sometimes it might happen when you're on a retreat. Sometimes it might happen when you're studying the Bible on your own. Sometimes it'll happen when someone you love and who loves you confronts you about your sin or your lack of faithfulness. The judgment might be harsh. The consequences might be drastic. You might lose a leadership role. You might lose a relationship. Boundaries might have to be set up. Consequences that are life-altering might happen. But God's purpose in His rebuke and discipline is always to lead us back to Him. It's part of the character of who He is. Another proverb says, The Lord disciplines those He loves as a father disciplines His children. It's echoed again in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. It says the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises the one He receives as a son or a daughter. We also see it in how He interacts with His people who have some major sin. How does God interact with Adam and Eve? He lays out their earth-shattering consequences for their rebellion. But he continues to pursue them and care for them and invite them deeper into his embrace. Moses, who is leading God's people into the promised land, dishonors God and God says, you cannot go to the promised land where I'm leading, you are leading people. 
but he extends his arms of mercy and invites Moses deeper into it. And that's what he's doing for Saul here. God is inviting him back to his loving embrace through his discipline. Saul is losing his role as God's king, but he's still a member of God's people and God loves his people. God is inviting him back. And when he confronts you and me in our sin, he's inviting us back to his loving embrace through discipline. How will you respond? Will you respond with a broken heart over your sin and the break in the relationship with the Father? Or by walking away to save face before other people? Sadly, Saul is not brokenhearted over his sin against God. He's fearful over how he will look in front of the other people. This is how he responds to Samuel. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. His worship is a show for the other people. Saul's fear of his people, Saul's desire to maintain his reputation leads him to completely abandon his faithfulness before God. And you'll see through the rest of his life and kingship, it all unwinds from here. He cares so much about what other people think. He goes mad and crazy. Even when God confronts him, Saul refuses to return. God gives him over to his desires in his judgment. And Saul, Samuel obliges and he goes back to him. Saul's reputation for the most part at this point is intact. But then God doesn't abandon his own mission and he sends Samuel to accomplish it. Slaughtering Agag like Agag had slaughtered so many people. God's mission and his justice will not and does not fail. The fear of man is a snare. This is the tragedy of King Saul. The king that God's people wanted was the king who could not escape what everybody wanted of him. The king who campaigned for his own honor of what other people thought of him while he was supposed to campaign for God's glory and honor. But there's a promise of hope in this passage where Samuel says, the kingship is being given to your neighbor who's better than you. And God begins to work out his promise throughout history that there's another one who's on a campaign who will never fail at the campaign of glorifying God. You and I aren't kings and queens of Israel. And most of the time, the idolatry of people pleasing that we do doesn't have this drastic of consequences, though some, a lot of psychologists call it an addiction. but it's still tempting and damaging to our soul. God lumps it together with all the other sins of rebellion and idolatry. But the second half of the proverb says, but those who trust in the Lord are safe. As we look at this promise that Samuel is making to Saul, we see Scripture unfold that God is making a plan to make us safe when we trust in Him. That the only one who actually deserves to devote other people to destruction is the one who is coming, the good king on the throne who is just, who has a flaming sword coming out of his mouth, the one who always walked faithfully, who never defended because he never needed to, who never spun because he didn't need to, who never sinned, who always walked seeking to glorify God. 
He stayed faithful to God even as others accused him of blasphemy and other crimes. And he never relented, and instead he faced God's wrath as the consequence for our lack of faithfulness. And because of this, he gives us his righteousness of his faithfulness. He invites us to cling to him, not to save our reputation, but to be wrapped in his cloak of righteousness. Because his cloak of righteousness that he wraps around you and me cannot be torn away because it enfolds us in an embrace. We don't have to fear what other people think because the God of the universe delights in us and sent the greater king to claim us. It's God's campaign for his own glory to send Jesus to conquer us through his love, through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death and his rising from the grave, that we might find our true glory and our belonging to him. God was pleased with Jesus' obedience and with Jesus' listening, and he gives it to us and invites us to come in and to receive and to embrace. Will you pray with me?